Emerald Podcast Series. Research that makes a difference. On this episode, I am speaking with Dr. Nirit Weisblatt, former visiting research fellow at the University of Southern California, Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. The speciality is in the tech news field. Hi, Nirit. It's great to have you here with us today. Thank you for your time. Are you keeping well? Yes, I am. and I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Excellent. Thank you. So let's talk about what we're doing today. So we're going to talk about your book called The Tech Clash and Tech Crisis Communication, which is due to be published as a paperback this March 2022. It would be amazing for us to hear about the book. We've got some really great questions here. So let's get started. So what led you to research the tech field and then to write a book about it? I've been working in the tech field since 2005, uh, 17 years ago. So before my academic journey, I was in the tech industry. I worked in both tech journalism and tech public relations. So for years, I made a lot of tech savvy pieces, enjoyed covering the cutting edge innovation coming from Israel. And when I was a deputy editor and finished my master's degree in communication and political science, I looked for academic examinations of my field, the tech coverage, and found none, <laughs> like a significant gap in the literature, a lack of both you know, theoretical and empirical work on the interplay between my worlds, the tech journalism and tech PR. So with my background in both, I decided to investigate it myself. So for five years of my PhD in communication, I analyzed the tech media agenda. One of the judges of this dissertation actually wrote, who cares about tech news? No. <laughs> yes, he did. He was so into political communication and only political news that I needed to explain why tech journalism is actually important. Now, today, I don't need to do it anymore, right? No. <laughs> but the beginning was tough, I must say. In the additional five years after that, as a research fellow at USC Annenberg, I focused on the emerging tech clash, the tech backlash. And the thing is that when I started this research project in 2016, uh, the tech media was not tough, like, at all. So my criticism back then was about the cheerleading writing style, the non-investigative nature of the coverage and like the immense influence of corporate PR. But in the course of my study, we moved from big tech being our saviors to our threats <laughs> and, or from, you know, it's so cool, everything, and to it's so evil. So a lot has changed. And the research that I've done explains this massive shift, like reveals the underlying causes of the backlash and the strategies the companies use to defend themselves, you know, from all the growing scrutiny. And I had so much data about it that it turned into a whole book that I gladly published with you. <laughs> it is really fascinating. And, you know, there isn't really a point in time where we're not hearing something about these big tech companies, really. 
which I'm sure that professor that you had right at the start, he probably thinks back to <laughs> how he responded when you first came to him with it. Yeah. But the book storyline is organized chronologically. So you've broken it down into pre-tech lash, tech lash, and then post-tech lash. That's a clear, concise way for any reader to understand the work. But can you talk us through why and what you've learned about those eras? One thing that I think would be really interesting is what are sort of the defining milestones that mark the end and then the beginning of the new era? Okay, sure. So yeah, I organized this story in this chronological order because the historical background is crucial here to understand the magnitude of the change. But each phase has several changes within, and it's not that dichotomic, I mean, but one of the book's points is that we're currently on the dystopian side because we spend a great deal of time on the utopian side. So the pre-Teklash era section uh, depicts like for decades, the tech companies were used to mainly flattering coverage, right? We had plenty of computer magazine that pushed the fanboy culture, all the tech CEOs wished to be on their covers. Now, Kara Swisher, who was interviewed for the book, called it the celebrification of the tech founders. So they were like celebrities, like rock stars. And one of the things that were um, crucial in the past is how tech companies took advantage of like the hunger for information and people wanted to be you know, close to those rock stars. And in this power dynamic, many conversations were on background, meaning the journalists cannot use or share any of the info gathered. So there was always like this tight control with secrecy and limited access. And this power imbalance, it's one of my points in the book, like heavily contributed to the tension between the media and big tech, like the roots are in the past. And this is why the pre-tech section like set the stage, like help explain the current tech journalist revolt, I can say. I mean, they had enough, they just had enough. But of course, like real life events shifted the tech coverage. And they all appear in the main section of the book. It's the Teclash era, which starts in the end of 2016, but uh, focused on 2017. And I can explain why. And the last chapter, the post-Teclash, is just about the um, growing criticism of big tech moving forward. So like predictions. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I think the points about sort of these CEOs being rock stars. It's so interesting. And it it is symptomatic of the kind of culture that we have, isn't it? So yeah, no, that's really interesting. Thank you. So your the study within the work reveals the roots of the change in tech journalism. What are the main contributing factors that caused this shift? Sure. So we in academia were yelling at the tech journalists that they have to be tougher on everybody, specifically big tech. And in 2017, as I said, tech journalists indeed began to get tougher. So what I've done, I used an AI-powered media monitoring tool by Harvard, and I retrieved more than a quarter of a million articles from the tech coverage. Wow. In a typical pre-techless year, 
like the big tech companies uh, picks of coverage in their yearly timeline were just like the product launches and business reporting. So those were like the main stories. We had negative stories all the time, uh, failures, investigations, fines, privacy issues. We had them all, but they drew considerably less coverage compared to uh, what I called product journalism. What I saw when I analyzed 2017 was that the big stories in the coverage were totally different and were very negative uh, with a lot of tech scandals. So that was a big shift that the data showed me. And in addition to the uh, media monitoring and content analysis, I conducted interviews with actors in the tech industry, so tech PR executives from global PR agencies and leading tech journalists. They came from like the leading places, uh, Reuters, TechCrunch, the New York Times, Wired Magazine, and so on. And together with all their testimonies, it actually illuminated the inside story of the tech lash. So they were really like open and honest. And they said on the record that what formed the tech backlash was the election of Donald Trump. So they were like blaming social media for the UK's Brexit referendum before that. But like their pivotal moment was the post-presidential election and the role of social media in helping Donald Trump. Then new revelations regarding the Russian interference with the U.S. election evolved into like a bigger story and micro-targeting advertising became this you know, force of evil. Right? And the other thing that came from the interviews is that, you know, it's the tech company's scale and bigness, right? Being too big to fail. So generally, if people feel that companies have gotten like too powerful, too big, too rich, that in itself creates a backlash, right? The realization of the power of big tech just sinking, and then people started to question it a lot more. I mean, they all started a startup. Now they are the establishment, the biggest companies in the world. So if you look at the tech today, it's mostly focused on them, right? Those few dominant companies that we can mention. And on top of that, the data also showed me that focusing only on the political campaigns, such as Brexit or Donald Trump, or the company's bigness, won't do justice to the tech lash. We had various cases of extremist content and hate speech, major cyber attacks or data breaches, which raised the alarm about privacy violation and data protection. We had a wave of allegations of anti-diversity, sexual harassment, and discrimination culture in you know, Silicon Valley and beyond. So I basically documented the accumulation of various issues at once that broke the camel's back. Yeah, it's so fascinating. And it's these key points in time as well that we can, you know, they're all in our memory and we can relate it back to things that were going on. It's really fascinating. So your study also analysed the tech PR responses and introduced the concept of tech crisis communication. So can you tell us a bit about that and what can we learn from the tech company strategies? Uh, sure. So the tech clash caused reputational decline of an entire industry, right? So I decided to ask, how do companies defend themselves from this growing scrutiny? So I conducted a comprehensive content analysis 
of the company's like press releases and spokesperson statements to journalists. Now, despite having like different companies, different stories, as I mentioned, the responses were very much alike. <laughs> the companies rolled out the same playbook over and over again. So I created an explanation of this playbook in the book. It's called the Tech PR Template for Crisis. <laughs> so it was pretty clear that big tech was not ready to give real answers to tough questions. So I broke it into three main stages. So one strategy was the victim-villain framing. So it goes along this line. We've built something good with good intentions. We had previous good deeds. We have strict policies. But... Our platform was manipulated, misused by bad, malicious actors, okay? So, like, blaming those outsiders. The second thing was uh, pseudo-apologies. If you remember all the apology tours of Mark Zuckerberg, right? After Cambridge Analytica and everything. So, yeah. many of the responses included messages of, we apologize, deeply regret, we ask for forgiveness. And those messages just were like usually intertwined with, we need to do better. You know, the sentence like uh, tech companies use it a lot. It usually um, comes in this order. While we've made steady progress, we have much more work to do. Yeah. And we know we need to do better. So it's like the ending <laughs> of every press release, right? We know we need to do better. And each tech reporter like heard it, like, I don't know, this specific combination a million times by now, right? Now, I mentioned they said sorry and sorry and sorry, so I pseudo-apologies. Well, because when you look at the literature, they used all the possibilities of reduce their responsibility. So the, all, all the elements that I mentioned in the previous stage. So it's the reminder strategy, just mentioning the past good work, the excuse strategy, we have good intentions, the victimization, we are the victim of this crisis, and of course, scapegoating, blaming others. So if you combine all those, you're not really saying sorry, right? <laughs> so, no. so this is why I summarize this as big tech, big scandals, little responsibility. The third thing that all the companies, of course, had to do is state that they are proactive. Like this is crisis communication 101. You have to state that you are proactive. And the common sentence is, uh, we are currently working on those immediate actions to fix this. Looking forward, we're working on those steps for improvements, minimizing the chances that it will happen again. But of course, it happened again and again and again and again. <laughs> and then they added, but our work will never be done. This is not crisis communication 101. And I think uh, I was shocked seeing it again and again. And those seven words, but our work will never be done. It's not something that you do in a crisis because you want to say, yeah, I'm going to take care of it and it's going to be done, right? Yeah. <laughs> but it's like big tech's, let's say, ultimate confession <laughs> that the problems of their own making are too big to fix. So that was really interesting. Now, one way to look at all this, you know, PR template is to say, well, of course, that this is their messaging, right? I mean, they're being asked to stop big, difficult, you know, societal problems. So it's an impossible request. But in reality, all of those, you know, responses backlashed heavily in the media. So the way the tech crisis communication chapter is organized in the book, there's like a type of crisis response and how it backlashed in the media. Another type of response and how it too backlashed and so on. So like I'm emphasizing this cycle of never-ending criticism, which eventually escalated to the tech policy debate we have today. 
The thing is, whenever any of us see an apology now from a big tech company, we're going <laughs> to recall which kind of apology it is. Ultimately, it's like you've mentioned, it's a lack of responsibility and maybe accountability as well. It's so interesting. Honestly, Nira, every time I see something now, I'll think of you. <laughs> that was the purpose of my book, to people to have more of a critical eye. Absolutely. But we don't want the big tech clash people seeing this because they'll know that you find them out. <laughs> All of their secrets are right. So you recently claimed that the tech clash is getting stronger. What are the other reasons for this? Is it because we have become more critical as users? I don't think the users are the issue here. It's more like media and politicians. Right. Okay. Are the one doing the most of the uh, backlash. Clearly, everything became politicized. And we're now witnessing more and more political pushback and investigations around the core issues of the tech clash, uh, content moderation, disinformation, antitrust and monopoly power are like the main ones. And I think like three main factors drive the tech clash today. The first one is, of course, COVID-19. While most businesses are playing defense, big tech is playing offense, right? Like they're worth trillions of dollars now. It was unheard of when I wrote the book. <laughs> like at the beginning of the pandemic, trillions of dollars was unheard of. So people are more reliant on those companies and at the same time notice their like impact on their lives. The second thing is the political issues that I've mentioned. So we had major political events, congressional hearings, grilling the tech CEOs over antitrust concerns and misinformation and disinformation. And I think above all here in the U.S., the, the civil unrest on January 6th was this seminal moment for the tech clash, a big one. The third point that I'm thinking of is the overall framing of the tech industry. Uh, specifically, big tech now is like the villain. And in this framing, if the tech companies are the ultimate villains, those who oppose them are the ultimate heroes, right? So when you look at all those things together, the pandemic, the political pushback, the framing in the media, it all like resulted in um, frustrated tech employees and a growing trend of in-house activism. And the most known example, like for a few months ago, is Facebook's whistleblower, Frances Hogan. She made this huge noise uh, all over the world with the Facebook files and Facebook papers. Yeah. And it brought us to what I call the next-gen tech clash. So if uh, TechLash uh, 1.0 was like a cold <laughs> war, yeah. TechLash 2.0 is all hell breaks loose. Like the backlash was bigger and stronger, just like the company it's fighting against, right? It's all escalated. And Facebook being grilled by the media and politicians uh, changed its crisis response strategy. It moved from its famous apology tours that we've mentioned to the current no more apologies. Like now it's just counter attacks. It's engaged in like full blown battle over the narrative, attacked the accuser, denied, like contradicted France's accusations. Two fascinating things happen after that. The first is what I call Facebook fatigue. So although the revelations were overwhelming, in the test of time, people become numb 
Like, think about it. Can you remember all the scandals that were in the Facebook papers, Facebook files? I mean, like, people, oh, Facebook did what? Responded how? Oh, oh well, next, next. We have such a short attention span that people just moved on. I mean, I think it's quite remarkable that even with the strength of the tech clash, it's still like it passes through, right? Yeah, yeah. And the second thing is the escalated promotion of Web3 as a solution of all our current problems. So people are sick of like the dystopian web <laughs> and <laughs> fantasizing about a utopian one. And many find it in the blockchain. Like this, this is the new optimism now. This is how we're going to fight the tech titans like Facebook with decentralization. But I think we had the same hype cycles around Web 1.0 and Web 2.0. Uh, the vision of the future was always like that the web revolution would bring an era of transformative abundance and prosperity. Mm. But, you know, on its way to the many, the new wealth has consistently been diverted up to the few. So now when you have all like VCs aggressively pushing Web3, I can explain it for our listeners, but it's like, like crypto, NFTs, the centralized finance uh, platforms, like a bunch of blockchain stuff. They're also getting more pushback with people calling it a utopian BS, a dangerous <laughs> get-rich-quick scam, or even a Ponzi scheme. Yeah. So I think like the lesson here is that every new technology will be looked at with a critical eye now. Like, and I call it the techlash filter. Like Instagram filters, you know, that you put on pictures and change the look and feel. It's the techlash filter. It adds the, like this criticism layers on top of, anything on the tech coverage and it's here to stay and as i said only getting stronger yeah so we've got one last question for you and you have alluded to it already um just with what you've said in terms of the tech clash filter and the fact that the tech clash is getting stronger what is the future of tech clash and what are your future plans in this space near it Oh, uh, well, the Teclash is a gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> so I um, like keep collecting tons of data about the shift in the tech coverage. Like just now when we talked about the change in crisis response, right? It's a sh another shift in within. So not a boring day. It's all interesting. <laughs> and I publish my own articles about it and opinion pieces in the media. Uh, the next one is about Web3. This is why I'm talking about it now. But what I would love to do next is uh, to utilize my tech expertise back in a newsroom to contribute to the tech discourse from within, where I don't know yet, <laughs> but I'm starting to pursue this path. That would be amazing. It would be so incredibly insightful being on the inside again. That brings us to the end of our podcast. But this has been so interesting and it's just insightful and it's a space that continues to grow, as you've said. But thank you for your time and insight. My pleasure. It was fun. Ah, <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find a transcript of my conversations on our website, as well as more information about our guests. I'd like to thank Dr. Nirit Wise-Black for today's episode and Alex Youngis from This Is Distorted. Thank you.